They cannot get away from the Jawa. <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe this is a place to bring it up since, you know, it's a costume podcast. I want to know what's underneath the hood. I want to know. Children. I, oh, <laughs> I did not like that. <laughs> I meant, what did they look like? <laughs> Welcome to the Art of Costume Blogcast. I'm Moses Joy Glass. And I'm a Wookiee named Spencer. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was unexpected. <laughs> I was practicing my Wookiee in the car this morning. Do you like it? I love it. I love it. It's spot on. It's spot on. Um. Uh, what's oh. up, Elizabeth? You know, just work. Um, oh, oh my gosh. I planted some onion seeds. I planted white and yellow onions. Okay. And they started sprouting. Wow. That is such a good little, feeling. And their little seed starter. That's so fun. It is. It is. I ha- After this, I have to do some yard work so I can like get their bed ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm really I'm, proud of myself. I'm proud of you too. It's such a good feeling. I'm growing sage. And they're in like the little sprouts too, but I think I messed them up. I don't think they're going to make it. So I might need to start over, but it kind of feels like it's too late to start over, but we'll see. I had, Um, I had some herb plants that I had left over from last year and one or two of them I kept alive for like two years straight. And then like our weather has been so weird here. I think they died. Yeah. (laughs) I think they just just got frozen to death. I mean, there comes a certain point here in LA where it just gets too aggressively hot and everything just dies, which is what happened to me last year. So that's, aren't you guys in a drought again or something? Were we ever not in a drought in Los Angeles? I, I thought you like had come out of it a little bit. And then I just read something the other day. It was like, Oop, drought, no more lawns. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) it's like every day. I don't know. Um, how was your week? It was fine. It was a normal week. I might be helping a local theater with their costumes. So that's something to look forward to. I love that. Yeah, they're doing the SpongeBob musical. Okay, is every theater doing the SpongeBob musical? I was just reading another designer being like, help, I need help finding a SpongeBob musical costumes. Uh, maybe, um... (laughs) I hadn't heard about it then the other week. My manager, I, I found out about this through my my manager. She was like, oh my gosh, the SpongeBob musical. Da, 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 da. And I was like, SpongeBob? Like, I like kind of <laughs> heard about it and been like, oh yeah, that's another Spider-Man musical, like waiting to die. <laughs> no, um, I, I believe it's actually a pretty big deal. Yeah, because like a million and two famous artists have co-written all the songs mm-hmm. she played me a song it was really good um <laughs> cindy lopper co-wrote one of them what like yeah wow it's like wild and i was like oh that's crazy okay and you know how i feel about cindy lopper i love she's her. your girl um wow that's awesome yeah she that's cool um speaking of 
famous girls, you know, who I saw the other night. Oh, who do you see, Spencer? <laughs> I saw Florence and the Machine, her first yes, performance did. back in America since before COVID. Oh. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I was so excited for you guys. I was like, yes. But yes. you're going to be coming here in October to see her at the Hollywood Bowl, I too. Am. So I am. Fans, if you're listening, come hang out with us at the Hollywood yeah. Bowl and sometime in October. <laughs> sometime in October. Um, yeah, I actually dropped a bunch of money for to pre-order a bunch of her uh, merch for her new album. Oh, it's so and good. then because I, I went to the UK site mm. and they have signed posters with what? the cassette bundles for like $35. And I was like... I feel like I should make that purchase, but I spent like an obscene amount of money already. Oh my gosh. Do you think that's still there? I need to check. <laughs> I checked this morning. It was still there. I'll send you, I'll send you the link. I'll check during our break. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was magical. Magical though. She really brought me back to life. Um, yeah. We're big Florence and the Machine fans. Yes. Yes. Well, Speaking of magic, I guess we should head out to the Outer Rim for some good old costumes. Uh, go to a galaxy long ago, far, far away. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> so, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, Star Wars A New Hope took place and we watched it this week. Uh, this is the movie. I'm so excited. And this is the I end of know. our space month, too. So we are concluding with one of the greatest space films of all time one of the greats one of the greats um you can tell it's great because there's actually a, a large amount of information out there i love that about this movie which like took me back i i bought a whole book <laughs> yes to do this episode so it's about to be great spencer <laughs> A summary. It's something about those John Malo projects that just are like loaded up with the behind the wardrobe facts. Yes. All right. Here's our summary for Star Wars. The Imperial forces under orders from cruel Darth Vader hold Princess Leia hostage. In their efforts to quell the rebellion against the Galactic Empire, Luke Skywalker and Han Solo, captain of the Millennium Falcon, work together with the companionable droid duo R2-D2 and C-3PO to rescue the beautiful princess, help the Rebel Alliance, and restore freedom and justice to the galaxy. And that is Star Wars A New Hope. That felt ridiculous. How do you all not know what happens in Star Wars? Yeah. <laughs> if you don't know Star Wars, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Maybe don't. You might not understand any of this. No. Try harder. <laughs> if you have disney plus go watch it right 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 just right watch all of them um but let's jump into this let's get behind the wardrobe we have director george lucas and costume designer john malo yes he's who, back he's back we we started space month with him and we're ending space month with him oh yeah oh we I did just realized that, that. wow <laughs> look at us look at us ha having things together oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, notable work obviously star wars a new hope originally titled the star wars they mm. retitled it um 
I guess, I think when they decided to do the prequels, (laughs) somewhere in there. (laughs) He also did the Empire Strikes Back, Gandhi and Chaplin with Ellen Mirajnik. I'm very excited about this. I got, after being very disappointed that I apparently only had the Star Wars book for the prequels, I bought... Star Wars, the original trilogy by Brandon Allinger. This is amazing. Book is beautiful. It's beautiful. It talks about like one movie at a time. So like you don't like it's not like all over the place. It's beautiful. It's worth the money. And there's a lot of really great quotes in it from just like everybody involved. Um Except George Lucas. I didn't see any (laughs) quotes from him. Just people quoting things he said. (laughs) He wasn't interested. He wasn't interested. Um, Talk about an interesting person. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) But one of the things George Lucas is quoted as saying in the book uh, about the costume is that I don't want any of the costumes, any of the spaceships, any sets, any animals. I don't want anything in the movie to stand out. And that is where they started for the costumes, trying to have nothing stand out, which I'm like, it makes a lot more sense now. (laughs) The costumes in those first couple movies, I'm like, you clearly lost this philosophy with (laughs) the prequel trilogy, but okay, (laughs) this makes sense. I mean, it's one of my favorite philosophies in costume design. Like sometimes really great costuming just fades into the background and it makes everything feel real. Yeah, I mean, that that is very true. I mean, I love my costume dramas. Um, right. <laughs> but sometimes they just got to fade into the background. And the first person to help that happen was 2D concept artist Ralph McQuarrie, who was the first person Lucas brought on to help him not only visualize the world, but also create the first costume concepts. Uh, McQuarrie said... George had a lot of ideas about how this picture could look. He wanted to get all this on screen and he could see it in his mind. He expected from me the kind of hand that could give the glorious look that he had hoped for. The look was almost as interesting or more interesting to him than the plot. So it's like, he's like, I want this big, vast world. It needs to look real. It needs to fade. But like the story and the how everything looked was equally as important to him. And to achieve this, he brought on, as we talked about before, uh, John Malo, who said something very interesting uh, about the project. He said, this was the most amazing kind of film, a real thrown together job. (laughs) And that is so clear because at this point, John Malo was not a costume designer. No. (laughs) (laughs) When looking for a costume designer, George Lucas wanted someone who was familiar with the uniforms and had experience on military films. So he reached out to Italian costume designer, Melina Cannonero, who designed the wardrobe for Barry uh, London, which I think we should watch. I saw some like pictures from it and I was like, this looks interesting. Yeah, we've brought it up now twice in the past yeah. month. So we need to think about this. <laughs> anyway, unfortunately, Cannonero was like, I have another project. Um, 
But I know this guy, John Mallow, uh, who was the technical advisor on Barry London. And coming from a family that collected military uniforms and published books on military dress. Is that his book? I have had this for years. I had no idea who John Mallow was. It's just something I've had. I don't even know where I got it from. I, I have no is... idea where this came from. It's bef- it's like before Star Wars because like his big work thing that he worked on is Barry London. Like that's what his like in the description, you know, of like the authors. Yeah. Like that's what it talks about. Oh my gosh. That's no amazing. idea how I got this. <laughs> <laughs> I am shook right now. <laughs> it is um, uh, Uniforms of the American Revolution by John Mallo and Malcolm McGregor. <laughs> wow, that is crazy. So, uh, <laughs> for lack of a better word, he was a little perfect for at least his military knowledge made him the ideal technical advisor on films like The Charge of the Light Brigade, Barry London, and many others. Uh, Mallo said... Melina rang me up and asked if I was doing anything for the next six months because there was a science fiction to run. So I said, yes, why not? <laughs> That's such a John Mallow thing to say. <laughs> it's such like a British thing to say. They're just like, oh, yeah, sure. I, I suppose. Yeah. Was it called Star Wars? Wars? Sure. All right. <laughs> um, it's funny how many people agreed to do stuff for this film who were just, had no idea what was going on. Right. Like, Man, no one's asked me to work on a Star Wars yet. <laughs> right? I just want to be randomly called up. <laughs> so Malo started with 16 weeks of prep and McQuarrie's concept art, which he said took the place of historical reference in a scene. So he studied the concepts, the scripts, to prepare for his first sit-down with Lucas, where he was given very broad and strange direction. (laughs) He said, George made pronouncements of a general nature. He wanted the imperial people to look very efficient and totalitarian and fascist, all that sort of things. The rebels, he wanted to look a bit like something out of a Western or U.S. Marines in Vietnam. Then Lucas told him, you've got a very difficult job here. I don't want anyone to notice the costumes. I just want them to sort of look at the costumes, but not notice them. They've got to look familiar, but not familiar at the same time. (laughs) Okay, this quote bothers me a little bit. I'm like, first of all, George Lucas is such like a baby director at this point. And John Malo is not even a costume designer. So the nerve of these two to be like, I'm working on this new film called Star Wars. Also, I want anyone to notice the costumes. I'd be like, sit down, sir. Let's 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 talk about this. Yes. Well, Malo tried to get more direction from Lucas, but only managed to get that the bad guys should be wearing dark colors, the good guys should be in earth tones, and there should be no fastenings showing, no buttons, no zippers, no nothing. Okay. Lu- Lucas didn't want any <laughs> buttons or zippers showing. Apparently, this was a very big deal. Great. Like, which I never noticed, but you cannot see any fastenings in those movies. Yeah, I mean, it's a solid point. It is very sci-fi now that I think of it. Yeah, like they just don't exist. So, with those vague orders from Lucas. <laughs> 
Malo hired Ron Beck as his wardrobe master. Believe that is probably a British way to say wardrobe supervisor. I like that. Uh, which, yeah, I'm like, I feel like that's better. Um, yeah. To set up the wardrobe department and get going. However, the budget for wardrobe was less than idea and renting was going to be their best option. So Malo and Beck got a model, a Polaroid camera, and went to Berman's and Nathan's to see what they could find. So at the I'm bottom, out. you will see their budget. <laughs> oh my gosh. A thousand pounds or in US dollars, to, uh, two, $202,771. Translated to 2022, that's $1,024,560.17. Wow. So not a lot. No. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> not a lot for something that was so expansive. And this is... George the, is still like, no fasteners. <laughs> no fasteners. And this is, this is the 70s. They yeah. didn't really have too much CGI, if any. So all the extras are extras. You got to dress everybody. And there are a lot of extras in this movie. Yeah. So... They went to the famous Berman's and Nathan's. Spencer, do you want a little history lesson on Berman's and Nathan's costumer? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Take that as a yes. <laughs> well, Berman's began as a military tailor shop in London in the year 1900. With the advent of film, their business grew immensely, and by 1971, they had branches in Hollywood, Paris, Rome, and Madrid. Nathan's had an even longer history. Nathan's was established in 1790 as a fancy dress supplier for theaters, circuses, and exhibitions. The company also grew with the film industry, and in 1971, the Nathan family relinquished control of the company, and it was acquired by Monty Berman in 1972, thus merging the two businesses. Mm. Dennis Fitzgerald, who worked as a costumer, recalled first hearing of the production coming to Berman's and Nathan's. He said, We knew John Mallow very well because he had been a military advisor. I got a call from Bob Worth saying they wanted me to work on a sci-fi film with John which was a really strange thing because that's the last thing in the world you would you'd expect him on. <laughs> so this guy was like, what? <laughs> John Just, Malo on a sci-fi film? Literally everybody's confused. Bro, you're confused. I'm confused. John Malo's confused. <laughs> so Berman's and Nathan's, they created the costumes on a make-for-hire business model to keep the costs low because they had no money. However, that also meant that Berman's and Nathan's got to keep them as part of their stock once filming was complete. Years later, Lucasfilm purchased all the costumes for their archive, except for what had gone missing from their stock. So there are just Star Wars costumes floating around out there. Oh, I'm sure they've been found at this point. Mm. Someone's just not saying anything. Uh, probably <laughs> some Star Wars people are crazy and would probably just keep it till they died. Yeah. Um, surprisingly, Berman's and Nathan's no longer exists. They were bought by Angels, the costumers, in 1992. Mm. So 
If you want the premier costumes in the UK, Angels is your is your best bet nowadays. Wow, thank you for sharing. This is actually very fascinating. Yeah, I because I'd actually heard of Angels. Um, I wanted to like go apprentice there at one point, but um, that just sounds expensive, and I have too much student <laughs> debt. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, anyways, uh, after their trip to Bergman's and Nathan's, they put on a sort of fashion show for Lucas to decide what they did and did not like in terms of style. Malo said, for instance, Darth Vader has this black motorcycle suit on, a Nazi helmet, a gas mask, and a monk's cloak we found in the Middle Ages department. So they put this together and show it to Lucas. <laughs> like, I'm just like, wow, this must have been wild times getting this yeah. together. Uh, after that, which it was apparently a very successful way of trying to figure things out, uh, Malo and his team got to work making and putting together the wardrobe with a regular input from Lucas. As Beck explains, George was wonderful. He used to come into the wardrobe department when we were playing around with stormtroopers and all that sort of thing and would put his two pennies in. Like it was, it was inevitable because we were on strange uncharted lands, which is like true, <laughs> true. However, it worked out. Because in March 1978, Malo's costumes, not meant to be noticed, received the Academy Award for Best Costume Design and remains the only space fantasy to win the award. Well, I mean, to this day, it still kind of like gives me chills a little bit. The whole, yeah. the whole dumpster fire that this was turned out to be one of the most legendary costume design jobs ever. Truly, <laughs> truly. It was like... Hey, I know you've never done this before, but uh, could you be our costume designer on this really big film <laughs> that, unbeknownst to us, is going to be a worldwide sensation and generate billions of dollars? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we should play the clip from his uh, award speech right here. Ooh, yeah. Daniel, if you can find that. Daniel, insert. <laughs> I have it. I'll okay, give it to him. Cool. Uh, the costumes from Star Wars are really not so much costumes as a bit of plumbing and uh, general automobile engineering. Anyway, my thanks to uh, George and Gary and particularly to the wardrobe department, especially Ron Beck, and to all of you for giving me this very happy tribute. Thank you very much. <sighs> so great. I so just great. love it so much. I love it too. And I can't wait to get into this and give you all the good, all the good facts I found. Let's <laughs> take a little break and then get into it. Take a break, you will. <laughs> that, that was Yoda. I think I'll stick to Chewbacca. I yeah, I think yeah. your Chewbacca is better. <laughs> Everybody practice your Chewbacca impression. <laughs> Hi, this is Dan, audio engineer of the Blogcast. Just wanted to let you know that if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash theartofcostume. There we post unheard bloopers, 
highlights, and bonus episodes just for our patrons. Make sure to check out the description for all of our links. And thank you for all of your support. by the imperial empire oh am i ever however <laughs> c3po and r2d2 not quite as ready well you know what i take that back r2d2 is ready c3po yeah. not so much r2 ready r2 ready r2d2 stays ready so he doesn't have to get ready yeah he's <laughs> always on it he is always on it um C-3PO, on the other hand, he's not good with this sort of thing. Not good with this sort of thing at all. Um, But he does look good. And McQueary actually said that this was the first piece of concept art that he finished. The very first. Oh, wow. And this was the direction he got from George. He said, George said he really liked the Metropolis robot. Except it should look like a boy instead of a girl. George Lucas, a man of many words. Uh, Right? (laughs) Right? I'm like, at least this was a little clearer. Um, However, to create the suit for actor Anthony Daniels was unclear at first. Uh, They really kind of struggled with this one. Yeah. Uh, But you can definitely see the Metropolis influence. It's like pretty clear (laughs) (laughs) i always feel so bad for anthony daniels oh that looks rough right right and it was rough for everybody involved prop man brian loftus said about the suit it was first offered to the costume department but they said that's far too industrial so it was handed off to the prop department and in fact c3po became a prop effectively no Which I'm like, oh, (laughs) that is an actor in there, sir. (laughs) Uh, But Brian Loftus, uh, he was the prop man who dressed Daniels on all three of the original films. Nice. Now, before props officially took it over, it was up to art director Norman Reynolds and modeler Liz Moore to translate McQuarrie's design into molds paying particular attention to the face uh barry said liz moore modeled nine faces and we stood them up at head height all the way around the stage they were kept well apart so they didn't interfere with one another and george should look at them and decide which one said the right thing he wanted to say so they were just like heads all over the place (laughs) which one uh The same was done for the bodies more sculpted. Once approved, they created different pieces that were cast from fiberglass, which Mm. I'm like, ooh. Real comfy. I I tried using fiberglass once. Um, I do not recommend if you are not (laughs) a skilled artisan. (laughs) And vacuum formed plastic. And then it was given to Reynolds in props. Uh, They ultimately had limited fittings with Anthony due to his schedule on another project. 
So to figure out how to fit the pieces over the black leotard, under fiberglass and plastic pieces, but they ultimately made it work. After some last minute additions to exposed wires, the team was done creating the costume. But the maintenance needed to keep the costume wearable <laughs> and filmable had just begun. Oh, Bachtel said, we had to have lots of spare parts. As he was moving around the set, things would fall apart. We needed constant repairs. Can you imagine? This is so aggravating. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm just like, this seems like a bunch of people. I like most of the like the crew seems had a lot of experience, but also I think they just didn't know what to do with a sci-fi film like this. It's a miracle that A New Hope came out the way it did. Because it is a miracle. The cards are really stacked against it at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right? And also, while they were maintaining the suit, they also had to be careful with how shiny C-3PO was. The cost... The... The camera department had to continually coat the costume with dulling spray so the crew's equipment wouldn't be reflected in it. <laughs> Occasionally, they had painters who would have to be brought on to ensure nothing could be seen reflected in the suit. They had to literally like go in there and like dirty him up and paint him up so that nothing reflected. The troublesome costume was upgraded to be more durable for the Empire sh Strikes Back. And then minor modifications were made for a return of the Jedi. The costume was put into storage and dec decades later refurbished so it could be used on the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> wow. It's the same suit. <laughs> Remember that quote from Dracula? I believe is Gary Oldman. Well, was Gary Oldman when he was wearing the red, like, suit from the beginning and he said it felt like he was in like a car accident <laughs> <laughs> that's all i could think of this entire time <laughs> poor anthony daniels he was probably no. just like oh get me out of this <laughs> um but it seems like he was a real sport about it he just was like okay i guess this is my job <laughs> yeah i mean back he then, did it for nine films <laughs> back then they couldn't be like oh just so you know you're gonna be part of this cool thing for the next you know 40 plus years but <laughs> right oh my gosh and for the second film they were talking like they hired an outside company to like so they're like let's make it lighter let's make it better for him like they had more money this time around so they were like let's make this better the company, like, completely ruined it. It was too small. Oh, man. They were like, it was just too small to fit on him. Like, he literally couldn't get it on. And they were <laughs> like, well, I guess we already figured it out. So, <laughs> But uh. C-3PO is not the only uh, type of new character we get introduced to. We also get introduced to um, some rebel guard with these very fun hats yeah. that <laughs> were modeled after American naval gunnery helmets, except with a plate stuck on the back and a visor on the front. I always loved these helmets. I just never understood them, but I love them. <laughs> right? And I'm like, when he said like, oh, things need to look familiar, but not familiar. Like, this is what he's talking about. Because it's like, once you know the reference, you're like, oh, yeah, like, I understand, like, where you were coming from. Yeah. I know why it looks, like, vaguely familiar, but I don't 
like I would never be able to place it without someone telling me like, right. hey, this is what it's based off of. Yeah. We also get introduced to the scary man himself, Darth Vader. Yes, finally. Finally, uh, performed by David Prose and voiced by James Earl Jones, who went uncredited what? in the first two films. Yes. So I was trying to figure this out. And I couldn't find, like, a direct quote from him. But, like, w- apparently he was, like, I, he felt like his voice was more of an, eff- like, a special effect than an actual, like, performance. Huh. And then also he was still kind of, like, an up-and-coming actor and didn't want to be typecast. Hmm. Those were the two. Also, a lot of people were very wary about how well Star Wars was going to do. Right. <laughs> a lot of people thought it was going to tank their careers. Yeah. I mean, so far, I would understand that feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's shocking, even for the second film, because, you know, he has some big moments in the second film. Right. Um, apparently, for the first film, he only did like two and a half hours of work. Yeah. Where I'm like... <laughs> well, <laughs> that's right. Um, I'm like, okay, like I can kind of understand the first film being like, I just provided a voice, like whatever. Um, however, nobody told David Prost this was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently the man was just like livid about it. Yeah, they're like, he, <laughs> the we just need you to walk around, sir. <laughs> yeah, apparently he was apparently very upset, very <laughs> upset about it. <laughs> I'm shocked. I cannot believe someone was disgruntled on this set. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he it sounds like he was also like kind of a dick about it. Like was spoiling things back in the day. Well, that's Darth Vader for you. Right? He's a he's a real tricky guy, you know. Real tricky. <laughs> um and McQuery said about the kind of feeling Lucas wanted for Darth Vader. He said for Darth Vader, he just said he would like to have a very tall, dark, fluttering figure that had a spooky feeling like it came on the wind, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm like, not going to out the park again, George Lucas with uh, (laughs) your direction. (laughs) I I need to have a conversation, George Lucas, after this. This is ridiculous. (laughs) I'm just like, like shocking that this came together the way it did. Um, Yeah. But, you know, the direction worked. The direction worked in the end. And for Vader's costume, Query said, George mentioned the look of Arab costumes with the figures all tied up in silk and rags. So while he took this direction from his original inspiration, Malo took very something different from his sketches. Yeah. So McQuarrie is like, got it. Dark fluttering. Arab <laughs> costumes. Okay. And Malo's like, hmm. Nazi and German soldier. I knew it. He's like. <laughs> he said, have you ever heard of World War One?" While Malo said that Vader looks very much like McQuarrie sketches, he did not see the Arab inspiration. No. Malo said, to me, the costumes look like a Nazi helmet and pieces of trench armor that they wore in the First World War. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> George Lucas, your direction is just astounding. <laughs> but you gotta say, it created something great. So he, like, I right. guess he had, 
it worked. I mean, yeah. Who are we to judge <laughs> yeah. George Lucas? Obviously, it worked out. But I'm just like, I can imagine myself back in the day being like, "What the hell does that mean?" Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Malo explains that to bring Vader to life took the combined effort of his production team and the Burmans costumers. It was a technical challenge, Malo said. It was going to be very uncomfortable, so it was made in pieces so you could take bits off on set. So he was like, yeah, you're going to be hot and sweaty and uncomfortable. Because mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that's like a whole leather suit under there. Darth Vader but, saw Anthony Daniels walk by and he was like, oh, shit. You <laughs> probably saw that and was like, I have I have it a tiny bit better, but okay. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's wild. It's like, oh yeah, that's a Nazi hat. That's trench armor. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then for his most iconic piece, the helmet, uh, McQuarrie drew inspiration from samurai warriors and fishermen hats. However, the helmet was not supposed to be a permanent part of the costume at first. In an early draft of the script, Darth Vader was supposed to jump from his ship to the rebel ship through space (laughs) and being practical McQuarrie knew Vader would need a space helmet to breathe and survive the jump he said I came up with this goggle look with the snout with the little slots that looked like teeth and so forth and Lucas was just like oh yeah I like that we're gonna keep it (laughs) right (laughs) the helmet sounds good (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The helmet was created by modeler Brian Muir, along with John Barry and Norman Reynolds in the art department. Uh, In the book, they say, after using the Darth Vader costume for promotional appearances to promote the film, it is not known whether the original costume still exists. Oh, so apparently the, the Darth Vader costume just went missing. This checks out. This doesn't surprise me at all at this point. Right? They're just... I I love how George is just like, oh, this and that. People come back like this? And he's like, yes, that. That's that's definitely what I was thinking, for sure. Yeah. I'm just like... Um, I just... I love the Darth Vader costume. It just is so iconic, and it, it is very dark, and it does to me, like, the first thing I think of is, like, you know, Nazi war armor, the helmet, and everything. So I just... You know, while they did not seem to know what they were doing on set, it really plays to the whole story as a whole. And it's just, you know, still one of those like most iconic villain costumes of all time. Exactly. It just says bad guy. Like that's what it says. It draws fear out of people, you know, like Mm -hmm. even in the films coming out today, like Rogue One, when you just see him in the hallway. It's like, (laughs) yeah, it's scary, (laughs) even though the costume is actually quite ridiculous when you like actually take time to look at it. But it's still scary somehow. Yeah, you break it down. You're like, oh, that's silly. But like when in the movie, you're like, oh, I don't want to meet that person. No, (laughs) I just don't. (laughs) <laughs> and thankfully, C-3PO and R2-D2 get away from Darth Vader, but they cannot get away from the Jawa. <laughs> no. <laughs> I Maybe this is a place to bring it up since, you know, it's a costume podcast. I want to know what's underneath the hood. I want to know. Children. I, oh, <laughs> I did not like that. <laughs> <laughs> I meant, what did they look like? <laughs> Uh, 
Spence, let me tell you, Spencer. Okay. Malo said, <laughs> there were not concept drawings for the Jawas, so they had to be designed. They were supposed to look like little rats, sort of grimy and filthy. They were supposed to be very nasty. George really went quite filthy with them. Mm. After some original designs were rejected by Lucas, Malo went with a simple design of a mask made of a stocking with bulbs that would illuminate when the hood was pulled all the way over their heads and simple brown and orange robes with simple leather accessories. <laughs> Most of the Jawas were children of the production staff or local <laughs> children when they were on location in Tunisia with the lead Jawa being played by Jack uh, Purvis. I love this. <laughs> They're just like, <laughs> bring all your kids to work. We we need a lot yeah. of kids, a lot of Jawas. Also, I can imagine this was a point when John Malo was designing a Jawa and he was like, what the hell am I doing? Like, right? He's like, I just worked on Charge of the Light Brigade. <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> He's like, I just worked just for giving my opinion. What am I doing right now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but... They are not the only ones we meet on Tatooine. We meet Uncle Owen and little farm boy Luke Skywalker. <laughs> wow. It's such a big moment. Also, I always loved how they called him a farm boy. I'm like, where's the farm? They have a moisture farm. They harvest uh -oh. moisture. Oh, okay. <laughs> I knew which that. I'm, which I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> how that works but okay <laughs> very arrakis of them very dune. right mm -hmm. right dune inspired all mm. dune inspired all mm -hmm. while luke was originally meant to have a flash gordon inspiration it was decided that he should have a simpler more quote farm boy look to him mm -hmm. malo said luke was inspired really by a saxon sort of costume he was very simple, homespun country boy, and we wanted something which was comfortable and very simple. Lucas decided he wanted Luke's top to have more of a Japanese influence, and Malo went from there. Another kind of thrown-together look, the pants were colorless Levi denim. Mm. The shoes suede slip-on Chelsea boots with... Quote, puppet knee-high wraps. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm like, just throwing Chelsea's on Luke Skywalker. Like, <laughs> I love this. Also, just something I point out since, you know, we did the Alien episode too. Just how many of these sci-fi directors are being inspired by like Japanese clothing at this point. Yeah. I mean, in Darth Vader's helmet, Luke Skywalker... John Malo and really Scott taking a lot of Japanese influences also on Alien. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, after World War II, uh, Japan and the U.S. had an extremely close relationship. And there was a lot of like cultural influence going to and from America at the time. So I think that's probably part of it. Fun fact, a lot of uh, McQuarrie's the original concept art for Luke depict him as being female, mm. which when you look at them, I'm like, oh, I see a little bit of Ray. So I'm like, I wonder if they took these oh, as inspiration right. for the new ones. Oh, that's such a cool point. I love that. But we have Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru looking adorable. 
I always forget because like the way they're treated in these first, I always forget they have a whole scene together. Right. <laughs> they have a whole scene together and then they're just up and murder. <laughs> yeah. When I rewatched it for the podcast, I was like, wait, what? I don't remember this. <laughs> right. Um, I was like, I love how our Peru is so 70s in this moment. <laughs> I know. That's what I was going to get ready to say. Like, she is so familiar to me. She reminds me of like one of my friend's grandmothers actually who just passed. But like, this is her to a T like wearing that very seventies almost looks like a denim jacket with like this yeah. really great collar. It Huge looks like she's collar. It looks like she's from like seventies Britain. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> she just looks like a sweet old grandma. Yeah. And then, um, uncle Owen's played by Phil Brown and Amperu is played by Shayla Frazier. And I'm like, so adorable. So adorable. So adorable. Too bad. They have to get wrecked in a couple scenes. Right, right. Also, who almost gets wrecked is Luke from the Sand People. Uh, McQuarrie said that the Sand People, they are a life form or humanoid form that is sort of damaged. They kind of mutated and their parts don't all work the way they should, which is why they have this very like bandaged, like thrown together appearance. So I think technically they're supposed to be human, but like, yeah, I don't know. I guess living in the desert has made them a little, little it's, off. It's one of the most fascinating costumes to me, like ever, because I've never been able to understand the sand people, but they're so terrifying right? and mysterious. Right. And everyone keeps saying, oh, they're like kind of humanoid. And I'm like, well, where? Show me. So I'm actually very excited. We all, Elizabeth and I are working on a special interview with someone who, might have worked on the new recent Star Wars shows mm -hmm. that created a lot of those costumes. So I'm hoping when that happens, we could maybe dive a little bit deeper into these sand people. Get a little more behind the scenes. But yeah, as a kid, I always thought like that was their head. I thought that was like their head. And then like when I was watching some of the new Star Wars shows, it occurred to me for the first time that like, oh, no, that's a mask. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, I think so. Like, I, I I'm, think. I'm not ready to bet money on it, though. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure now it's like a mask with like little like breathing things and whatnot. And I'm just like, sand people are fascinating. Yeah. it's We could do a whole podcast on the sand people. We probably could. But luckily, Luke gets saved by Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yes. <laughs> What if they're talking about old Ben over, I don't know, where you living? I love that, like, he's a hermit, but everybody knows who he is. My favorite part, actually, one of my favorite costumes, maybe this is my one costume rule of them all, is when the sand people are trying to bang up on Luke, and Ben Kenobi shows up in his, like, hood, but it's not, everyone's so scared, but it's really not, we look closely, it's just a man in a big robe, and he's just waving his arms back and forth, like, what? <laughs> and the sand people are like, like we gotta get the fuck out of here <laughs> i'm like i think he thought he was at a rave for a second not <laughs> that's so good <laughs> not trying to chase off the sand people john malo probably watched that too and he's like oh man <laughs> sir alec guinness was probably like what did i sign up for <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you know this costume is great because it establishes the look of the Jedi. Uh, Malo said his costume seems to have turned into this sort of costume of the Jedi Knight, really, which it has. And it wasn't meant to be. 
He also said that in terms of inspiration, Ben Kenobi was supposed to be partly samurai warrior and partly a sort of monk or priest. And Lucas had actually imagined Japanese actor uh, Toshira Mifu from uh, Seven Samurai in the Hidden Forest to play Obi-Wan when first discussing like wow. Kenobi's costumes, which got me thinking. I was like, hmm, if they had cast him, who would have been cast as young Obi-Wan Kenobi? Like, who would have it been? And I was like, it would have been Hiro Hiroyuki Sandana. Oh man, I love that man. He's such a great actor. I'm obsessed right? with Hiroyuki. Yeah. I'm like, because I, I was like, hmm, because I'm like, he's like, an attractive man, done? by the way, since yeah. you brought him up. <laughs> he is. Uh, he's another one of those men who's also like aging, like fine wine. Oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, yes, sir. <laughs> I'm guessing you didn't see him in Mortal Kombat, but he plays Scorpion, no. and I was like, noise. <laughs> um, but anyway, that was like a side search. This is why yeah. it took me so long to put this together. Yeah, people are listening. They're like, what are we talking about? Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, but as pre-production progressed, Sir Alec Guinness was cast, and the design was simplified and given a great deal of distressing, there's all sorts of little like men's and like like rips and scratches in that costume because they wanted it to be like, oh, he's had this for a very long time, which I'm like, I don't think Obi-Wan Kenobi would have just kept wearing his original like Jedi Knight robes, but OK. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't like I said, at this point, I don't feel like they really knew what they were doing. So I no. feel like if they were to do it again, they'd probably change it. But, I mean, it was iconic, and it did end up, you know, describing the Jedi robes later on. But, yeah, for sure, Obi-Wan Kenobi would not keep wearing these robes. It would have drew a little bit of attention (laughs) if he actually had, like, the Jedi Inquisitors looking for him at this point, which we're going to see in the new show coming out, like, tomorrow. (laughs) I love how he's also talking, like, still referring to himself as... Ben Kenobi. I'm like, yes, that's very different from (laughs) your name. Totally keeping you secret, (laughs) Obi-Wan. You know, maybe let's take a break and think of some better ways Obi-Wan could have uh, kept his identity hidden. It's like in Shang-Chi when he changes his name to Sean. (laughs) Aquafina's character is like, you came up with Sean? That was your disguise name? (laughs) That that was it? That was what you You went with? You could call me Ben. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, let's take a break and think of your your better <laughs> hidden name for Obi-Wan Kenobi. Hi, this is Dan, audio engineer of the Blogcast, here to let you know that if you wanted to support the show you can head over to theartofcostume.com slash podstore. There you can buy some awesome Tee Public merch with the Blogcast logo. We have shirts, sweaters, coffee mugs, stickers, and of course, a baby onesie. Thank you for all of your support.
come up with? Um, I was thinking like Garrett Kenobi. That would have really threw everyone off his scent. Yeah, yeah. I think he should have went with Anakin Kenobi and just really, that really, really messed with his mind. <laughs> that really would have pissed off Darth Vader. <laughs> I cannot wait for this new Obi-Wan Kenobi show. Right? I cannot believe we're going to see the Darth Vader armor once again. And even McGregor playing Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's just so fascinating. I mean, the idea that Hayden and Christensen is going to be inside that armor is just incredibly wild to me and i'm obsessed with it and i can't wait for everyone to see it especially if the jedi inquisitors coming back i'm a big star wars nerd i love the cartoons this is gonna be a great show i'm excited i'm particularly excited for hayden christensen because i feel like that poor man has like not had star wars destroyed his career a little bit i think the way people have treated some of these star wars actors is absolutely disgusting the Jar Jar yes. Binks actor, people are terrible to him. Yes. I doesn't mean I like Jar Jar Binks, but like, really? Um, the kid who played young Anakin and Hayden Christensen him, himself. Yeah. I'm like, they received terrible direction. Anything wrong with those movies? There's only one person to blame. I won't say who it is. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all know. <laughs> Speaking of people to blame when things go wrong, we have the Imperial officers being evil and terrible. I love the Imperial officers because their costumes are just so endlessly fascinating to me. Right? And like, I, I honestly like, I love them, but I really didn't think about them too much until I was reading this book. And like John Mullo said earlier, George wanted the Imperial commanders and officers to look efficient totalitarian and fascist Mm -hmm. so they were like well we gotta do this on a budget this has got to be a budget film so for the imperial officers they considered using stock uniforms um from bermans and nathans they looked at world war one german uniforms from the 1960s film the blue max and the 1960s adaptation of Fahrenheit 451, as well as some others. However, they decided to manufacture their own in black and olive, taking elements from all the uniforms they considered. So they were like, we're really going to try to do this budget friendly. Yeah, this is John Mahler's time <laughs> to shine right here. This is his yeah. cup of tea. Yeah. And then he was like... Well, let's just take a little bit of everything and <laughs> and make our own. But I'm like, wow, you can really see like the inspiration, especially from uh, Fahrenheit 451, like very similar, very similar. Yeah. I mean, just the silhouettes just really, I mean, they're evil, but also the silhouette of their uniforms are so beautiful. It's very clean and sophisticated and it does come off, you know, little... Definitely, like, I see the fascist influences. You could tell that they're dark, but also they're, like, good at what they do. I mean, they're getting ready to blow up a planet, so they clearly have some sort of idea what's going on here. Oh, yeah. I mean, at the very least, they have it together. (laughs) They know what they're doing. It's evil, but they know what they're doing. They know how to get this this done. Um, Especially Peter Cushing who plays Grand Moff Tarkin. Oh, yeah. He's the ultimate baddie. 
Yeah. One of the best, like, underappreciated Star Wars characters, I think. Oh, yeah. For sure. I don't think people appreciate him enough. No. Uh, John Molo said, as we were making new ones, we could incorporate very minor changes. In the in this German First World War World War style uniform, making alterations to keep in line with George's part about buttons and zippers and things, they just couldn't do it. That was the reason they manufactured their own. The company was like you cannot make all these changes to our costumes. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> they were basically looking at like destroying the costumes. <laughs> and Bourbons and Nathans was like, no. <laughs> John Molo did like the PA thing. He's like, my boss said that we need a bunch of costumes, but can you take off all the buttons and all the zippers? They're like, no, get out no. of here. <laughs> <laughs> and I also love something I never thought about before that. While the uniforms featured most are manufactured for the film, they did also use cream-colored Imperial Russian officers' summer tunics for several of the background officers, which I had never really given those officers much thought because they're not main characters. They're literally in the back. This is the best picture I could get of one, and it's grainy as anything. But yeah, this is one of the ones they took from the stock because they were like, we're not making these in cream. And I'm like, oh, wow. They really they really modified that. I barely even noticed that character before. That's very interesting. Right? He's he's just sitting at that table. That's like Because Tarkin is just acting the room around right there, just d- giving one of the best performances of his life in this scene. So. Yes. <laughs> um... But aside from their tunics, the caps were inspired by German for, uh, forage caps and feature a Ghibli, which was sourced from tur- a turntable manufacturer, J.A. Mitchell Corp. So the, those little like weird things on the front of their caps, that's just from a turntable. <laughs> and... One of the most fascinating things, like all these little, like weird little, just like the little front of the hat, like their little rank things, all those little like weird details you see, they call them like greebly. That's what they refer to them as. Mm. There was a whole part in the book on it called inner, inner, I think intergalactic Ghiblis or something. <laughs> it was a word they used for things they did not have words for. Nice. <laughs> That's how thrown together this film was. They were like, what's this? I don't know. It's a Ghibli? A, <laughs> it's a bobbly boo. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what is also, this film? <laughs> right. Also featured on the uniforms are small pieces of turntables place in each of the pockets up top meant to detect radiation Mm. so they're like i can't tell you what it is but i can tell you what it's used for (laughs) which i'm like i never noticed those on the uniforms like now i can't unsee them but i'm like oh yeah they do have little like weird things in their front pockets yeah that is interesting uh but we have lots of different bad guys in this film for some of the gunners and the um, the Imperial gunners and the Imperial ground crew, they had these these great uh, helmets inspired by 
uh, Japanese and Roman military helmets and modern Japanese riot helmets, which I couldn't find a picture of those. But I was like, oh, yeah, they do. Wow. that's I always love these helmets, too. Just the Imperial uh, ground crew and laser crew. Mm-hmm. Um, they're so scary looking. Also, yeah. Daniel's listening to this editing it. I know he would want me to bring up Spaceballs, too. And that's all I could think of when I see these helmets now. Like the Darth helmet. Really dramatic and big. Um, yeah. But they're just so beautiful. <laughs> the Imperial ground um, crew helmet, they were refu- referred to as the cheese grater. Nice. Because <laughs> it had those like big holes in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm just like stupid, but okay. <laughs> Back to Tatooine. We back to Tatooine. We have lots of different stormtroopers, and we're going to talk about the stormtroopers in a little bit. But the ones on Tatooine are very different from every other stormtrooper in this. Uh, George Lucas said he wanted to take some stormtroopers on location with him, and that they should be combat ready (laughs) when malo asked what that meant he said well they've got lots of stuff on back (laughs) okay (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i'm like another great direction (laughs) got it okay the stormtroopers on the desert planet (laughs) with all the googly goos on their uniform Uh uh-huh (laughs) uh-huh McQuarrie talked about the original inspiration for these types of stormtroopers. He said, at that point, George talked about making the stormtroopers really like American soldiers in Vietnam with things chalked on their jackets and they would be loaded down with all kinds of equipment, all mysterious things that you don't know what they are, little canisters like German soldiers wore in World War II. So George was just like, nah, put a bunch of junk on them. <laughs> yeah. John Mello was like, what do you mean? And he was like, I don't know, like this backpacks and stuff. John was like, okay, got it. Right. <laughs> um, so when he found out this, uh, John Mello was like, well, I guess let's go to the Boy Scout store mm. and bought their packs, these little seed boxes, the shoulder peach pieces were painted youth-sized motorcycle chest protector protectors. <laughs> so he was just like this and this and like I guess put it on them. Are they okay? And George was probably like, mm, yeah, I like it. Yeah, sure. That, that's exactly what I meant. Yeah, I'm just like, <laughs> how did this film get made? Like, <laughs> like when he references like war, like the German soldiers, the Vietnam like american soldiers i'm like okay like i guess the people really just had to take the one or two things he said and run with it yeah (laughs) this is exhausting (laughs) right but what was also really exhausting was the cantina scene Uh, with all all of our friends and aliens most disgusting hive of scum and villainy uh uh, malo worked closely closely with Stuart Freeborn, who created all the creature heads. Uh, Malo said it was all tied up with heads that Stuart had designed or could produce. It was a question of making sure the head and the costumes fitted together. George and I sat down and had a complete sheet, really, designing little 
figures for each type of person. He decided he wanted so many peasants, so many Martians, so many space pilots, so many pirates, so many this and that. <laughs> so they made this little chart and like had names for them so that they I knew exactly it. what they were talking about. Oh, uh, it's I mean, just this scene is just so iconic thinking about like while at the time it just felt like some nasty bar, but it really like did so much world building that carried on this legacy for 40 plus years. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's what Star Wars does really have. Cause it's like, you see all these little people and characters and like, while they don't seem like a big deal in this movie, like they are in return of the Jedi. They are in like, you know, the TV shows and films that are coming out now. Like it's a wild ride, but yeah. like it all like works for the best. Also what works for the best is Han and Chewie. <laughs> Chewie. <laughs> Leave me. Han Solo played by Harrison Ford. And another character almost inspired by Flash Gordon was Han, but that direction was abandoned. <laughs> and Malo said, a mixture of cowboy and more of orthodox space sort of thing mm. was Han Solo. <laughs> Oh, uh, he looks like such a baby right here. Right? Right? <laughs> I love this. This is another one of those just like iconic pieces that it's just like, oh, yes, that is a space cowboy. Like you can see it in like all sorts of things down the road where it's like cowboys in space. And it's like, oh, they all look like Han Solo. <laughs> yeah. Han Solo is the original space cowboy. Um, yes. I've always loved this costume. I just something about it it's just really beautiful and i love the fit of the pants with the vest mm -hmm. and the slightly open shirt because he's hanging out at a bar um it's just all it works so well together it does and it's like he looks very casual but then it's like he almost has like a tactical vest on and like riding boots and his holster and he's like i am ready for my smuggling business what about you <laughs> <laughs> We also have his friend Chewie, played by Peter Mayhew. And Chewbacca was inspired ultimately by Lucas's dog, Indiana. <laughs> Although he originally asked McQueary to base his concepts off of lemurs. Mm, I don't see it. <laughs> you don't. Okay, Spencer. I gotta say, I was worried. I was worried you wouldn't see the lemur inspiration. <laughs> So I picked, I got a picture of a lemur that I thought you would really identify with. Okay, that's a lemur. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Did it not change for you? <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Now I see it. <laughs> King Julian. <laughs> oh my God, you are so annoying. <laughs> So I mean, thank you, could, you. That that does help my picture. Yes, there we go. Yeah. All right. I see it now. Yeah. I thought it would. I thought it would. <laughs> uh, his original concepts also show a heavily heavily armored and clothed Chewbacca, but Lucas had other ideas. McQuarrie said George thought it would be a little weird with the flak flash flak jacket. He took that off and took off all his clothes. 
<laughs> so George Lucas is just like, no clothes. No, get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, he's like, he doesn't want Chewbacca to be wearing a jacket and no pants. <laughs> yeah. Or as Daniel would call it. Oh, Donald no, ducking no, no, no. it. <laughs> I am banning this phrase from the podcast because I don't like it. <laughs> I don't know why, but it bothers me. <laughs> so upsetting. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, I'm like, I can't imagine Chewbacca looking like King Julian. And just <laughs> okay. Well, what I think it is, looking at the concept art, which we're all gonna put, we're gonna post in the notes after, so you could all see. Um, but looking at the eyes of the original concept arts, they're very big and bold, which is where I think the lemur inspiration was. Yeah. Ooh. But I think once again, this is one of those George Lucas moments where people were like, lemurs, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I'm like, basing it off his lovely dog was a much better decision. <laughs> right. By the time Malo was brought in, it was decided that he would only wear a bandolier. The Wookiee suit was created by both the Creature Department and Wardrobe Department. Lucas brought on creature maker Stuart Freeborn, who had just created the satanic dogs in Omen and the man-apes in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm. Freeborn said uh, his direction from Lucas was this. Oh, God. Here we go. <laughs> I'll leave it to you. Something like a dog. Something like a cat. So I remodeled it. To include both types of features. And when George came in, he said, that's it. <laughs> I knew it. Of course, he said something like, I don't know, cat, dog. And then I showed it. He's like, yep, that's exactly what I was thinking. Right. That's it. I mean, I guess George Lucas's brilliance is just letting people do their thing. Right. And telling them <laughs> when it's right. Like, I think that's what we're learning here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is madness. <laughs> so that the mask could be articulated by Peter Mayhew, Freeborn created it using a, quote, rigged polyurethane skull that fitted to Peter's face, allowing him to move the mask and articulate emotion through it. Mm. The hair was added piece by piece using a hypodermic needle. Mm. <laughs> that sounds horrible. Yeah, that does not sound fun. Um, Freeborn said, I only wanted a thin layer of hair. Otherwise, I lose my elasticity and movement is restricted. And I'm like, I feel like movement was already pretty restricted, but okay. I mean, compared to C-3PO and Darth Vader, this probably feels very comfy like PJs. Probably. Probably. Uh, the suit itself was created by Stefan Miles, who bought a whole new machine to knit the suit. <laughs> Ron Beck remembers uh, after he, Mills, knitted the suit, I had to go to people who were like wig makers to have all the hair put in it. Underneath that, he, Mayhew, just wore this enormous onesie sort of thing. He used to, he used to get very hot. And I'm like, I would <laughs> imagine the suit was made of 
Angora wool and yak hair. Yeah. <laughs> a little I'm steamy like, in there. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a sauna, especially like, ooh, some of the places they go, I'm like, he must have been sweating. Yeah. Yikes. Amalo said it was all handmade. And once, by the way, we had to thicken his hair and re-knot him because in hot weather, he molted. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it just never ends <laughs> it was it sounds like this was a never ending headache especially with cool little side characters like this imperial spy who looks like someone pulled him out of the middle ages from like a plague camp right i've like i've always been trying to figure out if it's a mask or if that's like his little snout like a little nose right <laughs> right and i'm like so much thought had to go into that <laughs> no information so much thought had to go into Garrido for the two seconds he's alive in the film <laughs> no information on that he's got a whole head a beautiful suit uh yeah the Garrido mask is beautiful actually if you look at the eyes it it, is. It's, it's really incredible i feel like i've seen it before too one of his academy museum i don't know but Probably. It's, it's, a, it's a very beautiful suit it is and i'm like this is another character which iconic character Garrido is an iconic character forgot that he died within like not even five minutes of being in the film right <laughs> which i just read the other day when i rewatched this that i believe like young greedo has a little spot in the phantom menace deleted scenes i have to really? go back and check him out yeah interesting but before we get into some of the good stuff let's take a little break spencer just... <laughs> yeah we haven't got to the good stuff yet some <laughs> <laughs> more of the good stuff i should say all right, I'm going to go take a... That was a bad one. Cut that one, Daniel. <laughs> we'll be right back. Hi, this is Dan, audio engineer of the Blogcast. Here to let you know that if you wanted to support the show, you can head over to theartofcostume.com slash podstore. There you can buy some awesome Tee Public merch with the Blogcast logo. We have shirts, sweaters, coffee mugs, stickers, and of course, a baby onesie. Thank you for all of your support. about the most recognizable foot soldiers in history uh, i'm ready i love the stormtroopers it's one of the coolest armors ever it is one of the coolest armors ever and mcquery said the stormtroopers in the first movie were meant to be robot-like totally obedient the ultimate soldier without any feelings at all so they were sort of off being these people without expression which is totally what this mask is supposed to do. Just no expression, no nothing. Right. And much like other military units, McQuarrie had envisioned different ranks of stormtroopers using different shaped helmets. However, the practicalities of production meant all the stormtroopers would have the same helmet. 
Uh, Liz Moore created the helmets, helmet mold. It was the only one created out of the studio because hmm. she she was going on vacation to visit her boyfriend, and they were like, "Hey, can you do this while you're there?" She's oh like, "Okay." <laughs> so rude. <laughs> so she created the helmet. Brian Muir created the the clay molds for the armor which was quite the challenge because a standard size had to fit anyone that was 5'10 to 6 feet tall. Mm. To achieve this, they were made with gaps between each of the pieces so they could be adjusted to the right size. I think all that meant is that they created it in pieces. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, that makes sense. I mean, looking at how it's segmented on the body. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so once the models were finished, they created the armor using vacuum forming and sent it all to the costume department, who received the pieces of armor about four days before filming with no instructions to what pieces went where. Nice. This, that, <laughs> so that works. They were just like trying to figure it out. Like they were like, OK, black leotard underneath everything, black gloves. What do we put where? This looks like a crotch. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So that itty bitty hundred thousand pound budget they had, just half of it went to the stormtroopers. Dang. They're really out of luck here. (laughs) They were really out of luck. Everything else was just like, "Mm, okay, let's make this for pennies. (laughs) Um, But Malo, uh, he talked at length about the stormtroopers when they had to figure out how to put everything together. Uh, Malo said, we just played around until we eventually managed to string it all together in such a way that you could get, get it on and off the bloke in about five minutes. They had a black all-in-one leotard. The front and back of the body went together. The soldiers fitted onto the body. The top arm and the bottom arm were attached with black elastic and slid on and a belt around the waist had suspender things which the legs were attached to (laughs) the gloves were ordinary domestic rubber gloves with a bit of latex shoved on the front the boots were ordinary spring-sided black boots painted white with shoe dye that was it and strange to say it all worked. <laughs> That's funny. He's like, I've been through some things on this film, but somehow the stormtroopers worked out. Yeah. I love how he's like, yeah, no, this is thrown together. This is thrown together. But it created an enduring and iconic uh, baddie that we all know and love. <sighs> I'm so obsessed with it. The yeah. stormtrooper is so cool. also want to give a shout out to the 501st Legion, the yes, costuming crew. They're really cool. They are so cool and they study these armors to a T. I mean, it's their life and they create their own costumes. And I've just always been so jealous. It's just yeah. the coolest thing ever. And they're the nicest people too. Like, they're so nice. Um, yeah, 501st, you are doing great work. Um, but yeah, apparently these were extremely uncomfortable costumes because it was just like they had to cut pieces off for each actor and to like make it comfortable like they couldn't sit in these things like (laughs) like and once they were they were in them they were in them it was just like was what it was so these poor guys are stuck standing around 
they would have like pieces of like plastic like shoving into them where they were like, can you like trim this off, please? (laughs) I like would not like to be impaled by my costume. And they were like, you know, sometimes we got the same people back. Sometimes we didn't. It created problems having to take pieces off the costumes. (laughs) But they did what they had to do. And uh, it worked out. It really worked. Uh, Well, also worked out was the only different helmet was for the the TIE fighter pilots. They had a modified version of the Stormtrooper helmet uh, that added, like, the breathing apparatus and was just a little more, like, flight-inspired, which I'm like, would not have guessed that. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting, too, like, looking at the art, the, you know, they... Back then, they were probably trying to draw like a little bit of a similarity between the Stormtroopers and Darth Vader. But like, you know, now knowing how the whole story plays out, that doesn't really connect so much. But like even looking at all the concept sketches, they look a lot similar to Darth Vader's sketches. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I I feel like that was the point. It was like all the bad guys look like this. (laughs) Right. But then we have our best good guy, Princess Leia, played by Carrie Fisher. The absolute legend. I love her so much. The absolute legend. For Leia's main costume, they tried a lot of different, more princessy designs with Lucas's only directive that it be modest. (laughs) (laughs) Another stellar direction. I mean, at least this one I kind of get a little bit more. Yeah. He, he wanted her to be very diplomatic. Right. So they based... We'll the f- give you a pass on this one, Mr. Lucas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they based the final costume on one of McQueary's designs that they thought was kind of mock, Mickey, mock medieval and nun-like. Uh, it was made of silk uh, crepe de chine. The all white color palette references Leia's purity as a character, which I'm like, oh, yes, it does. Uh, they also made sure to age it and show that she's a woman of action and not just a diplomat, which I'm yes. like, oh, I like it. <laughs> and then the belt was made by Arnold Jackson, who had worked for MGM Studios since the 1940s. It was white leather embroidered with aluminum plates. <laughs> Apparently, they said this guy was just like, if they needed something leather, this guy was just like, mm, okay. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then we have the rebel officers. This is where you really see that like earth tone good guys come in. Yeah. Because they it, all just wear beige and like brown. <laughs> it's so interesting how like such a color palette could just like change the whole mood and you just suddenly feel comfortable with these people even though we really know nothing about this rebellion at this point no we just know that all the other guys are bad so these guys must be good that that was like that's what i kind of love about like the original trilogy they're just like oh the empire subjugates the universe it's like okay yeah (laughs) that's okay that's it all right almost zero context we just know that that guy is scary looking and we don't like them (laughs) yeah we don't like them but we do like the uh, rebel pilots. Uh, the now iconic color of the rebel fighter pilots was actually based off uh, McCurry's concept art of rebel planes being serviced. The suits were uh, made by 
uh, J brand racewear. And then the helmets were based on the U.S. Air Force's 1960 model APH-6B helmets. Okay. So (laughs) (laughs) I love... They took the color from literally this one stripe on the back of a, a service person's jacket. Well. Mala was like, that's the color. Let's go with that. <laughs> I also know they say it's the uh, APH-6B helmet that it was based off. That's what the book says. But I think it looks a lot more like the A6 helmet. Right. Which. Yeah, I kind of see it too. Yeah. Which I'm like, dang, like, did they just like. I know they didn't, but it almost looks like they took that and just like added some stuff to it. And it's also interesting. Your notes mentioned that uh, the Rebel logo was actually created by Molo, which that yeah. totally checks. That's a John Molo thing for sure. He loves a good logo. He does. I was about <laughs> to bring that up. He created that, which I'm like, I would have thought it would be McQueary's design, but mm-mm, yeah. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Uh, last but not least, we have the ceremonial scene Yay. when the baddies are all but destroyed. Luke and Han are really flying high because they saved everybody. And I'm like, this scene, like, you know, they weren't sure whether or not they were getting more movies. Yeah. <laughs> like if if this one had tanked and I just for some reason it like it ended up on a streaming service one day. <laughs> like if I was surfing Netflix and was like, huh, the Star Wars. Oh, this looks fun. And I saw it. I'd been like, oh, yeah, that's that's a cool movie. Whatever. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like there's no cliffhanger. There's no this is going to lead on to more films. <laughs> Yeah, like it, it's a good enough ending. They did leave a little room of like Darth Vader like spiraling out to space, but like yeah. this was a solid ending just in case. Which the way this episode's gone, talking about all the issues, I I too would have had that that feeling. Yeah, I remember this was years ago, but I was watching I was watching some documentary, and it was one of the one of the actors from um, Jaws. Uh, the science guy, I forget what his name is. He was talking about like after George Lucas was done this film, I I forget if it was like after like one of the first like screenings he did of it while they were editing. Apparently he like met up with him and like some other people at a bar and was like, oh, guys, I think I just made a children's film. <laughs> and he just he's like, oh, we all sat there and consoled the soon to be billionaire. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. Um, I digress, though. Uh, For this, they wanted to show that Luke was growing up and away from the farm boy he started out as. Uh, Malo said, said about it that George said, I think he ought to look a bit more like Han. So he... <laughs> so he uh concocted an outfit a bit like Hans but in different colors. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, a final George Lucas note. <laughs> oh, wait for the more more George Lucas notes. Oh, great. Um, I love Luke's like last look though because it's like a golden color and it's like you know he's saved yeah. at this point we think he saved the universe so he's like that golden boy, you know, he's wearing this gold color with some black he looks smooth and slick, you know. He looks... It's a job well done, Mr. Skywalker. And 
I do like like oh he's taking his fashion sense from Han because like yeah like Han Solo is probably the first adult influence he's had in his life that wasn't from Tatooine. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> also Han probably isn't that much older than Luke at this point, so it's I don't I, know. Like, I mean, clearly Luke's supposed to be like like what eighteen nineteen. Han Solo is yeah. probably like in his twenties, thirties, yeah. <laughs> something like that. Han's essentially wearing the same thing, just like in a more sophisticated pattern with. Yeah. They put I, in a washing machine. I think literally they just gave him a new shirt. <laughs> like, I think that's all they did. Um, but Leia gets quite the upgrade. Oh, man. Uh, they also wanted to give her a little bit more of a grown up uh, looking gown, which this is just beautiful. It was created with um, a French designer who they didn't really they didn't name in the book. They just said like a French house helped them make it, which I'm like, mm, yes, okay. <laughs> the tailoring on that is like. <laughs> superb so i believe it but the necklace is from the company uh laponia and was rented for the movie and this necklace has quite the story oh wow which i would have never thought but in 1976 Bjorn Wexstorm, mm. a finnish jewelry designer for laponia Yes, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. I don't speak Finnish. <laughs> um, received a call from Lucas's secretary who relayed Lucas's desire to have a piece of jewelry designed by Wexstorm for his new movie. While he didn't know who Lucas was, he was excited that his work had become famous enough for a film to reach out to him for a custom piece. So he began designing. He was like, Ooh. cool. Sci-fi space. Great. However, changes in the shooting schedule made it impossible for Wexstorm to finish a custom piece and directed Lucas's secretary to one of their retailers in London. They messaged Wexstorm that they found the perfect piece from his collection. Wexstorm didn't hear anything else from the production and they didn't even tell him the name of the film his jewelry would be featured in. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Wexstorm didn't know the name of the film till December 1977 when it premiered in Finland and a friend recognized his pieces. What? He later returned to his original designs for the film producing the the Pome necklace in the 90s. What? Right? That's absurd. He's like, hey, that's my necklace. <laughs> right? Right? That's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> but um, if you are interested, you can buy uh, Darina's bracelet for 160 pounds or $801.33 or the Planetoid Valley necklace for <laughs> 2,760 euros, not pounds, euros, or... $29,910.10. Ooh. I'll look around. I might have that somewhere. Right? Right? <laughs> if you want to know more about how this necklace um, came to be, you can visit the Cal... Really hard name pronouncing this. Uh, Cal Ivala uh, Jewelry Company, who bought um, the original company. 
Uh, they have a whole like article on <laughs> what it took to get this necklace in the film. I love it. I'm obsessed with this. Right? Yeah. It was quite the struggle for all involved. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I also love that in their like copy for the pieces, they talk about how it was featured in Star Wars and like names every single actor (laughs) 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 that was in it. Um, Except for Carrie Fisher. (laughs) What? (laughs) Like. This is just a mess. (laughs) This is this is what their copy for the uh, I think it was the necklace says. Part of Bjorn Wexdorn's groundbreaking space silver collection created in the late 1960s, Planetoid Valley and Darina's bracelet became internationally renowned when worn by Princess Leia in the final scene of George Lucas's first Star Wars epic as she awarded medals to Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. Oh, they weren't. Oh, they were mentioned. The one for the bracelet mentions who the actors are. Right. Uh But that was not the only ridiculous thing they had to put up with for this scene. Oh, boy. So here we go. John Mallow talks about this scene when Lucas said, oh, we're going to have a lot of people. It's going to the room's going to be filmed. (sighs) Mallow said, how many are in this scene at the end? And he said, George Lucas, something like as far as you can see. We asked, how many are there? (laughs) He said, well, 400. I just <laughs> <laughs> no no <laughs> how many are there <laughs> it's a simple question it is a number this is a question with an answer george lucas <laughs> i don't know like 400 costumes can you just rent that somewhere <laughs> well for the extras that weren't as prominent they rented both U.S. Marine uniforms and French Foreign Legion uniforms to fill out the scene. Nice. <laughs> and with that last wonderful note from George Lucas, <laughs> that is Star Wars A New Hope, everybody. Yay. That was so fun. <laughs> I love this movie. I want to go back rewatch it now. And I just... George Lucas, what an interesting guy. Um, what an interest! Like, he is one of the best directors of all time. One of the best writers of all time. Purely for the fact that this has endured for so long. Right. I like, mean, he has a vision. <laughs> like, you can't... Of course he has a vision. And you have to believe yeah. in it. But, like, his direction sounded really rough. His direction <laughs> sounded like I would have cried. <laughs> Uh, oh man, like, I just love it. And yeah, the costumes are brilliant. And John Mallow is just such a legend. I mean, I just talking about Alien a couple of weeks ago, like Ori was such a big fan. But now after going through A New Hope, I'm just like, wow, he really is one of the greatest costume designers of all time. I know. And it's like, this is why tomorrow, 45 years later, we are still talking about this movie. Right. The 45-year anniversary. That's crazy. Yeah. Like, 45 years, people are still talking about it. People are still interested. People are still taking inspiration from it. Look, in the past just two years, how many Disney just 
shows right <laughs> they've put out it's so much world building and think of all the costume designers and other you know film professionals that got their start from star wars it's just really truly incredible uh such a great episode elizabeth you did such a great job with all your research this episode Thank you. you always do but you really outdid yourself this week i i think the two-week delay <laughs> was yeah. worth it we've put off this recording for two weeks everyone just because we were like still building Purely because the night before the day of, I was like, hey, let's not do this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I don't know about you, Spencer. I'm ready for our favorite game. Let's do it. The one costume to rule them all. Spencer, what's your one costume to rule them all? Okay. Um. So... I think I might be changing mine. Oh. I had originally picked Princess Leia's first look aboard a ship at the way beginning of the film where she has the okay. white hood. It's very iconic, very classic. I love Carrie Fisher. She is one of the most brilliant people to have ever touched this earth, and I miss her terribly. However, I realized that I just love the Stormtrooper uniform so much more. It's just such an iconic piece. Yes. Just the way they built it and you know how it's how it's layered on people with the helmets and the helmets then had different variations and were reprised in, you know, the prequel films. It's just one of the most iconic characters ever. And I just wonder what the world would be like if the Stormtrooper uniforms weren't built the way that they were. So it's just my one costume to rule them all. Right. That's kind of the thinking I have with my one costume to rule them all. Which is Darth Vader. Yeah. It's like you think of Star Wars, you think of Darth Vader. You think of like iconic movie villains, you think of Darth Vader. Like even if you've never seen Star Wars, you've seen the silhouette of that helmet. Mm -hmm. you, you have. Right. It's everywhere. Like everywhere. I mean, have you ever been to like a party city and walked by the like <laughs> birthday party decorations? Yeah. It's all Darth Vader, which is insane right? when you think about it because he's based off of like an evil Nazi fascist leader. Yeah, yeah. Or like when I go when I go to the shore and I'm like walking down the boardwalk and there's all those like like little like touristy shops. Like there's some like Darth Vader t-shirt with like a stupid <laughs> quote on it or like Darth Vader helmet, like sticker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you can't go anywhere, at least in this country and like not see Darth Vader somewhere. Exactly. It's, it's just so brilliant. I love this episode. It was so fun. Elizabeth. It, it was fun, but Spencer, are you ready for something else equally as fun? <laughs> yeah, we need a little bit of a change of pace now that our space month has come to an end. This has been one of my favorite themes we've done. Me too. We need to do this again next year. But um, in true The Art of Costume Blogcast fashion, we're doing a 180. Spencer, what are we watching for next week? Next week, we are watching... The Great Season 2. So we're doing a very, very harsh change of direction here. Period. Comedy. Get ready. It's, it's so good. It's so funny. And if you're wondering, why are they only doing Season 2 and not Season 1? Well, you might have to check out our Patreon for Season 1. Mm -hmm. Keep mm -hmm. an eye out. Later this month, we'll be releasing the 
our season one episode of The Great for our broadcast after dark episodes on the Patreon. <laughs> Look, there's a lot of costumes and we just know that we're going to divide this up. Yep. <laughs> Which arguably could have been done for Star Wars A New Hope, but it doesn't matter. We're no. here now. <laughs> yeah, we're here now. We're doing this. Everybody get cozy, watch a great TV show. And then come back to us next week. Thank you all. So fun. (laughs) Have a fantastic week. The Art of Costume broadcast is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Joy Glass and Spencer Williams. Our audio engineering and editing is done by Dan White. Follow us on Instagram at the Art of Costume Pod or visit the Art of Costume Blogcast.com for all broadcast updates. If you want to support the show, go to the Art of slash pod store. Or you can head over to patreon.com slash the art of costume for some bonus content. For more costume reviews, deep dives, and interviews, head over to theartofcostume.com, a blog dedicated to highlighting the best in costume design. So by the time Malo was brought in, it was decided he would only wear the bandolier. Lucas... Oh, creature department. Mm. Okay, I'm going to start that over. (laughs) Take three. (laughs) (laughs)